following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. There's a great temptation to become shrill about what happened here in Detroit in July. It's a temptation we wish to avoid. Today, more than at any time any of us can remember, is a time for truth. And hysteria is no friend of truth. Some of what you see and hear will make you angry. But if it does no more than make you angry, we will have failed in our purpose. If it does not expose you to the desperation of many Negroes, a desperation that breeds the outrageous and lawless things being said and done by some Negroes. If it does not impress you with the absolute urgency of relieving that desperation, then we will not have communicated what black America is trying to tell white America. For we believe that the greatest single need in America today is for communication between blacks and whites. But there can be no communication between minds closed by anger. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreamers. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. Shame on you. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever, well, it didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? My fellow Americans, it's time to speak out. They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their name. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of the people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. Their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless America. 43 Americans died in these streets. 386 were injured. 477 buildings were damaged or destroyed. The city of Detroit was shut down. Something like it happened in 76 American cities this summer. We saw soldiers patrolling our streets. We saw stores and houses in our neighborhoods that looked as if they'd been hit by bombs. Next summer, it could look like this in the downtown sections of our cities. It could look like this in the neighborhood where you live. The simple fact is this. We're in the worst crisis we have known since the Civil War.
and time is running short to try to find some answers to it. The belief is fading that answers can be found, and we're losing the will to search for them. Here in Detroit, well-meaning, hard-working people thought they had the answers. Detroit was prosperous. Most whites thought their relations with Negroes were good. There was no housing ghetto in Detroit. Negroes worked on the assembly lines at Ford, Chrysler, and General Motors without discrimination for top wages. 57% of the Negroes in Detroit owned cars. 45% of the Negroes owned their own homes. It was said Negroes don't live better anywhere in America than in Detroit. Detroit cared about its poor. Detroit spent $45 million last year in city and federal funds to help them. On child care, job training, welfare, housing. Detroit's programs were studied and admired by experts from all over America. Negroes held important jobs at City Hall, in the police department, in the school system. Twelve Negroes were in the state legislature, two in Congress. On the surface, whites could see no unrest. White and black seemed to live comfortably together. White and Negro leaders agreed what had happened in Watt, in Harlem, in York, was unlikely in Detroit. One of them now says, we were doing all the textbook things, all the things we assumed prevented riots. What happened? What went wrong? This was the image of the Negro Revolution only a few years ago. Negro and white, side by side. Patient Negroes. After 250 years of slavery, 100 years of institutionalized degradation, a decade of unfulfilled promises, still patient. We shall overcome. The violence we saw was white. We saw Negroes hosed and beaten, harassed with dogs and cattle prods. Negroes who, whites assumed, would be satisfied if only they could sit in the front of a bus Go to a white school. Vote. If only they could integrate. Then abruptly, shatteringly, the images were different. Burn, baby, burn. Round out. We shall overcome. Two years ago, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, then Assistant Secretary of Labor, now Director of the Joint Center for Urban Studies at Harvard and MIT, wrote a report that foreshadowed some of the events that have so shocked us these last summers. The report began, the United States is approaching a new crisis in race relations. Do we know what happened to bring on this new crisis? Nobody knows what happened, but I think you can talk about it in terms that make some sense. The first fact is that once the demands for civil liberties for Negroes in the South began to take effect, began to have so show some results. The Negro community moved from issues of liberty towards issues of equality. But for Negroes, equality meant two things, not just one. It meant more than simply equal opportunities for jobs, something comparable to the general uh, standard of living, equal schools, equal rights to move around in the world. 
It also meant the demand for equal self-esteem, for an equal sense of your own worth and value, for the fact that black was just as beautiful in white America as anything else. Now, somehow or other, the expectations of both these groups of Negro Americans were greatly raised and promises were made to them. And somehow both sets of promises were broken. Well, didn't we, in a very real sense, encourage a lot of this? With the initial Negro resistance movement in the South, even though what they were doing violated the local law, and we felt that law was unjust, and we said, all right, it's, it's okay to violate that law, and blinded ourselves, uh, perhaps willfully, at least temporarily, uh, to the ominous portent of the violation of any law. Perhaps necessarily. Uh, what were you going to do in the face of Bull Connor in Alabama, except say that man is unjust, his edicts must not be obeyed. But look, we did it. We legitimatized opposition to the police and disobedience to law. Now in the North, it became a massive opposition to the rules of white society. The, the police had tried to tell us, I think, that this was happening in the slums, but somehow liberal Americans don't listen to police. The fact that it could become as open and could assert itself in the ways that we have seen this last summer was never believed. Suddenly, we tapped at every level of the Negro world a level of rage, of blind fury at the American social and racial system that could never have been conceived. Once the black people in the slums got up on their legs and defied the white police, a tremor, a shudder of self-recognition seemed to go all through the Negro world. And the middle class, as well as the lower class, suddenly said, we don't have to take it anymore. The riotists don't come from all levels, but the support comes from all levels. And increasingly, from the upper levels of Negro society, came the radical militant ideologues saying that forget America, white America is an irredeemably racist country, and that the only course for the Negroes is to bring about a final, violent, apocalyptic confrontation of black and white. There's no such thing as a non-violent revolution. The only kind of revolution that's nonviolent is the Negro Revolution. The only revolution based on loving your enemy is the Negro Revolution. That's no revolution. A revolution is bloody. Revolution is hostile. Revolution knows no compromise. Revolution overturns and destroys everything that gets in its way. And you sitting around here like a knot on the wall saying I'm going to love these folks no matter how much they hate me. You're going to sit in front of your television set and listen to LBJ tell you that violence never accomplishes anything, my fellow Americans. But you see, the real problem with violence is that we have never been violent. We have been too nonviolent. Too nonviolent.
1967 was the third summer of the burning and looting of the Black Ghetto. This was Newark in July. In Newark, for the last time, we could still tell ourselves that the old answers would work. In Newark, Negroes were angry about the old evils, bad schools, police brutality, bad housing, lack of political power. We could still comfort ourselves in Europe that at least we understood the problem. We can no longer take that small comfort after Detroit. This was a new kind of riot. It happened for reasons we had not been willing to recognize. It happened with a new violence. And it is this riot we must understand if we're to do something about the dangers that face us now. It wasn't supposed to happen in Detroit, but it did happen. The first question to ask is, why did it happen here? This is Linwood and Pengree. A block of houses and stores was burned here. NBC News correspondent Bill Matney walked with Daniel P. Moynihan through what used to be a place where people lived. Why did it happen? What happened? Who was involved? Some people rioted, most did not. And if some persons acted differently, there must be reasons. It would be unforgivable at this time to pretend to know more than we do, but here in Detroit, some of the reasons began to emerge, and they were wholly consistent with what we generally know about the way people behave in the modern world. You're speaking in, in, in the context of violence, violence and how it is that some people come to see their position in the world as unjust and how they get to the point where they just can't take it anymore. No, Bill, the houses that are here were good houses, weren't they? Yes, they're good houses and generally the people who live in this community are energetic, hardworking people. In most cases you'll find uh, both the husband and wife working. And uh, it has to be regarded as a solid, stable, middle-class community. This ride have really have towed down the community, have ranked people's lives and homes, and it have been made a very bad neighborhood to live in. We would like to take action to see this neighborhood cleaned up and uh, see decent people move in. Because you pay, anytime you pay $18,000 for a home, you don't want any and everything in there. I'm afraid of the people that hangs around on the corners. I'm really I'm afraid of. I'd be afraid to send a child of mine to the store. Somehow the Negro world itself has been pulling apart. On the one hand, a working class, middle class group doing well, taking advantage of every opportunity that comes its way. On the other hand, an underclass falling further behind than ever before. Look at this, Bill. This alley, that garbage is 50 feet from those other houses, and yet this is a world apart. This is a world of disorganization, of violence, of hurt people, crushed by conditions that they don't understand and the rest of America doesn't even want to admit exist. I don't think a person living in Europe today could believe 
anybody in America would live as these families are forced to do. And there's something almost specially American about it. Filthy, rotted housing and the back porch littered with broken down washing machines. We've got our priorities mixed up. We make too many automobiles, too many washing machines, let people rot all around them. How many children? I have six. And you are the sole support of your six yes, children? Yes, I am. And I would like to live in a better neighborhood, uh, but they won't allow it because I don't have a husband with me. And they don't trust a woman by herself, you know. When was the last time you saw your husband? Uh, eight and a half years ago. You have any idea where he is no, now? I don't. I don't. Realistically, uh, what do you think w will happen to your children? I, 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 I really don't know. Sometimes I think of giving them up, you know, and to a home, somebody to take care of better than I can. And then I think of, uh, you no, know, keep trying myself. And with six children, it's not easy, really. It's not easy. Everyone's been wondering who rioted here in Detroit. Who were the looters? The answer lies right here. These people looted. These people rioted. And some of these people threw the firebombs. They did it. The people who lived in and about this area. And that's the important thing to remember. They did it. There are about 100,000 people like them in Detroit, the lost, the dispossessed people outside our society. The Swedish economist Gunnar Myrdal coined the term an underclass, people under the entire social structure and somehow cut off from it. In 1960, 10% of the Negro population in our country was not even counted in the census. Among young men, upwards of 25% were just missed altogether. And you're really down when you're not even a statistic. From a distance, the life of this class has a certain attraction. has a certain glamour. Uh, it's a world of Saturday night. And the restraints and respectability of regular lives seem pretty boring and dull by contrast. I learned to fight before. Business acting surprised at all this. 
The signs that it was coming were unmistakable. What happened was that a great underclass formed in the Negro urban community. And the fact that such a class turned violent is about as natural as a social process can be. I guess it's also natural that America would not want to face that fact. I want three men to work in a plant. Job starts at 261 an hour. This is a hiring hall where men come looking for jobs that last one day. After six years of unbroken economic expansion, the month this riot took place, the unemployment rate for Negro youth was 25%. There is not another industrial democracy in the world that would dream of allowing the youth unemployment rate to reach 5%, yet 25% is the norm for the United States. Take men's jobs and their livelihood away, their families break up. A third of the Negro children in this city were living in homes without fathers. A quarter of the children born are illegitimate. Half the firstborn children are illegitimate. Families break up and they have to live on welfare. The Aid to Families of Dependent Children program here in Detroit grew and grew despite all the economic progress of these years. 60,000 children on it last month. And you go from welfare to crime. Detroit last year had the highest robbery rate of any city in the American nation. Look at those 11-year-old children breaking and entering like hardened criminals. Think what their future is. Robbery is a form of violence. Riots are a form of violence. But even now, I don't think we see what's behind the violence. It's not just a demand for possessions, for owning things. It's a demand for self-respect, for manhood. Now, the black man is not going to be subservient. No man is going to be subservient. I am the father of my son. I must be the father of my son so that my, my son respect me. I am the man of my house. I can't sit here and let you give my son food. Then my son goes to respect you. He's not mine. The only things that are mine are those things that I am able to control and able to contribute. Out of me, this thing must come through my labor. If I don't expend any labor, then what I got coming is crumbs. You see, my, my black parents have done this to me uh, in, in, in the past. They haven't gotten this pride. They have not learned that a man must be a man or he is nothing. There are different ways to try to be a man. One is a job on the assembly line at Ford making $7,500 a year. But if you're not treated like a man, but humiliated because you have a black skin, it doesn't mean much. A man has to have dignity, self-respect. These people are trapped. The white world identifies them as black, 
and the black world now scorns them. The rioters call them Uncle Toms when they tried to protect the firemen who were fighting the fires. Many now feel cut off from their black brothers, but many identify with the frustration and the rage of the rioters. You call us savages and beasts and mad dogs running the street burning and looting, but we're doing this not for the destruction of the world, but we're trying to prove one point. We want freedom and justice and equality. We want to be treated equal. The best thing to do is give us freedom of this place a riot with blood. Who speaks for him? Who speaks for them? Who speaks for their frustration, for their rage? No one speaks for them yet, but the extremists, the revolutionaries, speak to them. We have gotten our manhood back by the acts of violence. When the brother throws a brick or snipes from a building that he has just Return to his manhood. Personally, I advocate violence. I accept it when people die. It's just part of a revolution. I accept it. I'm sorry that they're dead, but it's just one part of a revolution. People have to die. Some gonna live and some gonna die. The extremists, the revolutionaries, say the black people have been left with no alternative but to gain by violence what they've been denied by peaceful means. The extremists offer manhood through violence. They offer self-respect. They offer pride in being black, dignity in being black, beauty in being black. They are saying it every day, and black people are listening. Well, I think it's pretty clear that the radicals didn't start this riot, but they'll be happy to take credit for it, and expect there are going to be more because they have no confidence that this country is going to do anything to change the conditions of life for the underclass we have seen growing up here around us on Linwood Avenue. We've seen them. They're not particularly able people, but they're hurt and angry and determined that... Self-respect. They offer pride in being black, dignity in being black, beauty in being black. They are saying it every day, and black people are listening. So I think it's pretty clear that the radicals didn't start this riot, but they'll be happy to take credit for it, and expect there are going to be more, because they have no confidence that this country is going to do anything to change the conditions of life for the underclass we have seen growing up here around us on Linwood Avenue. We've seen them. They're not particularly able people, but they're hurt and angry and determined to see a change in their lives. They, they want self-respect. They want manhood. Now, they can get it through work and responsibility like lots of other Negroes around us here have got it, or they can get it through violence, terrorism. It seems to me the point is that either way it will work for them. So that in a certain sense, their future is already settled. It's America's future that is in doubt. If we are not allowed to exercise our freedom, 
then we will do whatever is necessary to gain our freedom. And if that means tearing up the community to gain our freedom, we will. During the riot in Detroit, 43 died, all but 10 of them Negroes. 6,670 people were arrested. Most were Negroes. Many were left homeless. Almost all of them Negroes. The black extremists did not start this riot. It was not planned. It exploded because the black people were angry and frustrated. But once it started, the extremists began to move in. What follows are the facts about their activities during and after the riot as we've been able to piece them together. The riot began on 12th Street. 12th Street has been deteriorating in recent years. Urban renewal projects have uprooted 50,000 families in other areas and jammed four to six families into houses meant for one. It's not a slum by Harlem or what standards, but it's been getting worse. It's become a concentration point for alcoholics, narcotics peddlers, prostitutes, thieves, and hustlers. And these are the people who started the Detroit riot. The riot started here. This is a blind pig, an after-hours club. At 3.45, Sunday morning, July 23rd, it was raided. The raid was routine, called a nuisance raid by police. Eighty-three people were arrested in that raid on the blind pig. Police found no whiskey, but did confiscate six cases of beer. The crowd had begun to form, attracted by eight police cars parked outside and by the shouting and screaming from inside. Rocks and bottles were thrown. And shortly after 6 o'clock, the first store was broken into by the crowd. Between 6 and 8.30 a.m., the disturbance turned into a riot. Looting was at first unorganized. It was directed primarily against white merchants, some because of the way they treated Negroes, some because of the high prices they charged, all because they were white. As the looting went on, people who had opposed it caught the fever. By 10 a.m., organized groups had moved in to encourage it. They spread the word by phone, encouraged crowds to break windows and loot. The first fire was reported at 8.24. Here on 12th Street. And then, significantly, there were no more fires for another four hours. Time enough for any group that was organized to get in touch with its people and get them into operation. But then, within the next four hours, a group of incendiaries moved south along 12th Street, triggering 17 separate fires in the process. And then, between 4 o'clock and midnight of Sunday, four additional groups of incendiaries appeared to go in operation. One along Linwood, another along Dexter, another along this part of Grand River, and another along this part of Grand River, and by midnight, a second wave of firebombing had broken out along 12th Street, but nothing of any consequence yet in the eastern zone. During the next two hours, or until 2 o'clock Monday morning, there were additional firebombings along this section of Grand River. Another wave of firebombings moved north along Dexter Avenue. Molotov cocktails were thrown into stores for the first time along the John Lodge Freeway and into shops and stores along Woodward Avenue. And a new wave of firebombing broke out a considerable distance away in the eastern zone along Kerchival. During the next two hours, or until 4 o'clock Monday morning, the incendiary unit that had been operating along this section of Grand River appeared to move west along Warren. 
And a new area was brought under firebombing attack up here, just south of Roosevelt Field. There were additional fires along Woodward, and this unit seemed to be moving eastward along the connecting streets. And the incendiary team operating over here on Kerchival was extending its perimeter. By now, the riot was 24 hours old. Now, the firebombing continued for at least another 48 hours, but that gives the pattern. And throughout the firebombing, there appeared to be at least five and perhaps as many as ten incendiary groups at work. This man was one of them. We have hidden his face to protect his identity, but we verified that he did the things he says he did. Then we went over to a meeting that was taking place between the militants and Wilgamere and Gladstone. What kind of a building was it? It was an apartment building, and they have an after-hours place downstairs. And you went down with the other two men? Right. How many people were there? Maybe 50 to 70 people, I'd say. And who was leading the meeting? There was a young lady and a man leading. They were saying things that started the way they were, and it really had grown into a riot. They weren't really ready for it at the time, but since it had grown to what it was, they might as well make the best of it. They had a plan, but it wasn't scheduled to take off. They had no idea it was going to happen like that. But they were going to put the plan into effect. Right. They were getting little groups together, giving instructions on certain groups, certain leaders taking over and having the group go like onto Dexter Avenue on the other group going over to Grand River. We were told to break the windows in the store and get the people to break the windows, get the people who had gone in and looted and then burned the building. Did you leave to do that then? Yes, I did. Then you went and did what the lady told you to do. Right. We went up on back on 12th, and there was a paint store on Blaine and 12th. The windows had been broke. They told us to throw our cocktails in there. So first of all, I threw a can of cock gas, and then I threw the cocktails in. We ran down to the pawn shop. U.S. alone, and we pulled up the screen mats for the people to go up under. He told me to get the rifles and pass them out. So I went in and grabbed an armload of rifles and threw them out to the people, then went back and got some more. Sunday night, the first night, sporadic sniper fire began to be directed against police and firemen. Sniping was organized. There were few snipers, but they were mobile and able to tie up large forces. After we had went up and burned up all a few stores and, and things, we, we went to this place over on the east side, right off of Kirchival, and it was a little house. We went up to it, and, and it was this white guy answered the door. You know, then there was another whitey. No, no, it was a white girl inside also. And we went into the house, and I sat down. He went into the back, and they talked for a while. Then he called me back there, and he told me to pick out a weapon. So I took
took a rifle, he took a rifle, and he also took a pistol. Were the guns loaded? Yeah. He had loaded the gun. He took me from there, and uh, we drove around. Then we went up on Linwood and Hazelwood, and we got into one of the buildings up there. It was pretty dark then, and we got up on that building and waited for the National Guard and state troopers to come down on the street. And when they came, he opened fire, and then I started firing. Did he hit anybody? Yeah, he hit two people, and I saw them go down. I don't know if I hit any or not. I'm not too sure now, because I was just firing. The riot shut down all of Detroit, not just the riot zone. Stores, restaurants, hotels, businesses closed. 41 fire companies from outside of Detroit were required to bring the fires under control. There were no fire companies in reserve, none to protect the rest of Detroit or its suburbs. Detroit, by the fourth day, was near total disaster. Two months after the riot, Detroit remains tense. Any spark that set off another riot. Somewhere, sometime, it might be next week, tomorrow, next month, next year, you know, it's going to be more or less guerrilla warfare. They've already started little schools and things. So when the younger fellows and in the movement. Did you go to one of these? Yeah. Where was it located? This was uh, in a four-family flat over on the east side, down in the basement. They were having a little class. Did they talk about arms or explosives at all? Oh, yeah. What they wanted, they had rifles and, and things already, but they wanted explosives. They said they were supposed to get these from California, that they were going to get some explosives from California from the Watts area, and that they were going to go up in Canada and get the dynamite because they could get it easy up there. What else did they say about their plans for the future? It was just to try to blow up sewers and power plants and things like that. I know some of it is supposed to start this winter. Why? What have they said? This is a thing against the police. Is there a white man involved in the movement? Yes, it is. I don't know his name. Where does he live? I believe up in Pontiac. I'm not sure. The militants don't like the idea of him being in this? Oh, they don't like the idea of him being involved at all. Then why don't they do something? They can't because he got something that they need. I don't know what it is, but they just can't get rid of him completely. Is there a leader in Detroit? Yes, there is a leader. Uh, the leader is right now, that if he said burn down Detroit, the downtown part right now, the whole downtown section would be in flames. How do you know that? Because of his power with the militant group, and the militant group follows him. How do you know that? Because I, I know. I know they would follow him. Because he has fired certain places, he has had certain places burned, 
douses the riot. In the last 10 days of August, there were 62 fires in which arson was suspected. At least 18 of these were known to have been started by Molotov cocktails. Firemen believe arson teams set many of the rest. If there's another riot in Detroit, the extremists intend to control it. The leaders are few in number. For the most part, they are nationalists, Marxists, and separatists. They reject integration. They call themselves blacks, not Negroes. They are giving this country until next summer to fulfill the promises made to the Negroes, but they do not think it will. They believe there is no real alternative to violence. Their aim is to create chaos, to bring about a confrontation between black and white. For his own safety, this man's face cannot be shown. He is in the inner circle of black extremists. Some of what he says may sound to you like fantasy, but we have confirmed from other sources among black revolutionaries that what he has told us is fact. Tell me about what their plans are. What, what would they do here in Detroit that they didn't do this time? Well, number one, they would, they would start with police headquarters and work their way up. This time, it's not going to be any burning. It's not going to be so much burning and looting. It's going to be people's lives that are at stake. How many persons are in the hardcore leadership here in Detroit? Roughly here in Detroit, I would say roughly we have a dozen or so. And how about in other cities? Roughly about the same. Are they in pretty close contact with each other? Very close contact. Very close. And are they centrally directed from New York? Basically, yes. From Rat Brown? Not actually, not so much Rat Brown. There are some people over Rat Brown. You must realize that, too. Is there a behind-the-scenes leader in Detroit? Yes, there is. Is he white or black? He's the same color you are, brother. The black extremists do not speak for the Negroes of Detroit, but they and the white extremists are pressing for a showdown. You better quit running around here talking about loving these honkies to death. Doing rebellions, brother, you got to stop looting and start shooting. Black power, brother. Both sides are recruited for a battle they're prepared to fight in the streets. The July riot is only the beginning of what they anticipate. The black extremist argues there is no other way for the Negroes. They want violence. They want people to be killed. If enough Negroes are killed, they believe, there will be no room left for moderation. All Negroes will be forced to join them as troops. Many whites are now more eager to join battle than we might believe. They feel it's time to force moderate whites to choose sides. If the extremists can divide the rest of us into two hostile camps, all of our hopes for the future will be lost. Can we prevent it? How can we prevent it? Are we prepared to do now the things that must be done to prevent it? What did we learn from this? We learned that the Negro Revolution has changed, that over these last two years it has become a revolution of angry people, demanding not only rights but equality, demanding that self-esteem that is still denied them, 
that there is now a rage against this lack of dignity and manhood that runs throughout the entire Negro community. That up to now, it has been a spontaneous, unplanned rage. But here in Detroit, it began to be controlled by black extremists. But these black extremists are willing and eager to risk a bloody showdown with white society. We only got their stores this time. Next time, it would be them. We're tired. We've been pushed to the ledge. And all of a sudden, we say, well, it's either me or him. Look at them. They're wondering, what will it be next? Their home, their kids, them. Yes, this is what it would be, them, not us. The black extremists speak plainly. They believe there is no hope for the black man in white America. They want to tear it down. They tell us they intend to burn our cities. How do we answer them? With guns and fire, as white extremists demand? With wholesale arrests? Will it solve all the problems if we lock up Rap Brown, Stokely Carmichael, and the other leaders? Another Stokely would arise day after tomorrow. I don't think attacking leaders or attacking tendencies or people who express a particular point of view is going to change the conditions that exist in the ghetto. It is conditions that create people, not people who create conditions. Militants uh, uh, are expressing many of the fears and are expressing many of the hopes and aspirations of black people. So that the kinds of things that it sounds like to a person to whom this experience is alien, like the average white American, it, it tends to terrorize him and to frighten him. But it does not, as it does to the average black, represent the expression of these subterranean feelings, which he thought could not be brought out into daylight, which he thought could not be said without the world coming to an end. To listen just literally to what people say is to miss what is the main thrust of what they're trying to express. And they're trying to express this sense of alienation, this sense of deep self-hatred that has been created among black people. This happened on 12th Street in Detroit in July. Next time, it could happen downtown or in your town. And we've learned this, that the old answers are no longer acceptable, that the old solutions will not prevent what has happened to our cities these last summers. Will our cities burn again next summer? Will more Americans be shot down in the streets of their own cities? I'm convinced they will be, unless a great deal more is done. And I don't mean the sort of thing we have been doing. I think we must say uh, to the Negroes and the whites that this country is our joint possession. We all own it. And we will not stand here and watch the fabric of American society completely torn apart. And I think you must say with the same degree of conviction and fervor that the time has come to do something massively about the conditions under which the Negro lives. Things are wrong. We are going to change them, and we're going to change them on a massive scale. But while we're cleaning up this house, we're not going to let you tear it down around us. Exactly. Um, we are going to fail in everything we try if we don't start with the proposition that there has got to be an end to violence.
And this, up until now, could have been seen as a problem. How do you control a mob? <clears throat> How do you prevent a mob from forming, even? But we have seen, in this city, a cohort of half-educated, half-crazed young people who are planning violence. And if they only do half what they say, and only one out of 20 of them does anything, they really can tear this country apart, because we are very clearly involved with the makings of conspiracy. And we've got to stop it. But we can not stop it in good conscience if we don't do the next thing, which is to say no conspiracy can succeed without the existence of an enormous, troubled, disorganized, agonized lower class, such as we have seen on the streets here. We can't change the minds of these young radicals. We can stop their conspiring, and we can take away the raw material of their revolution. And the American people will solve this situation to the extent, first, that we do not overpromise, and two, that we undertake to do things that have direct and immediate impact on the people who are involved. We have got to have full employment. Everybody has to work, and no one should be allowed to excuse himself for not working. I think the United States government can become the employer of last resort, so that, in effect, anyone seeking work, not finding it after a point, a job is found for him, period. American business has not produced full employment in this country, although it's talked about it for a quarter century. American unions have not produced full employment, and indeed both have pursued practices which probably have been as much negative in this respect as positive. The second thing I think we have to do is get a certain measure of income redistribution. It's too far from the bottom to the top in this country. It has stayed that way too long. A perfectly clear proposal would be to establish a family allowance, such as they have in every industrial democracy in the world, say in the United States, a system whereby persons raising dependent children, parents, each month receive a flat payment to help with the cost of those children. Do it without social workers, do it without charity, put money in the hands of people and let them run their own lives. We've also got to face the problem of integration. Uh, I thought if you were to put bets on any one thing, I think it would have to be that the largest single source of the difficulties of the Negro people in this country is that they are not allowed to move freely in this society. We talk about giving a man a sense of his own dignity and manhood. What manhood do you have if the fact is that you can only live in one part of the city? And you know it. We're not a racist country, but there is racial feeling. It starts somewhere, and it stays with most people, and we don't see that there's a white problem in this country that is the worst of them all. What's at stake is something more than the old problem of white and black in America. Forty years ago, every industrial democracy in the world had slums, such as we've seen here in Detroit, had troubled, disorganized people, such as we've, as we've talked to here in Detroit. One by one, the other countries have got rid of those problems. We have been saying we're going to get rid of these problems. We have been saying we're going to have full employment. We're going to have good housing. We're going to have equal opportunity. And it never happens. We keep saying it, but we don't, don't do it. And after a point, the question is, 
can you do it? Issue is not just can we clean up Linwood Avenue. The issue is can we make this country function correctly? And if we find we can't in the face of this crisis, in this confrontation of this reality, if we can't do it, the question is whether we really still control our own destiny. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something, you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. A nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, they will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently for You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. Ask not. Yes, we can. What your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your five poor little children. Yes, we can. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can hit and keep moving forward. How much you take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Welcome to Public Access America. Yes, we can. Now on Instagram and SoundCloud. He wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter. Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Smart Radio, Potable, and more. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Public Access Public America. Access. History in the making. Making history in the making. In the making. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. 